Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode of The NIDS View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and with me today is Jim Petrosky. Now, Curtis McGiffin is on an extended assignment, and he will be back next week. And so for today's episode of The NIDS View, we wanted to talk about a, a great article that came out in the November-December 2023 issue of foreign affairs and the article is entitled the return of nuclear escalation how america's adversaries have hijacked its old deterrent strategy uh, the articles by Kier lieber and daryl press and of course uh Keir's at, at georgetown the school of foreign service and daryl is at dartmouth and they write a it's it's actually a really good article and i i think it offers a great explanation of adversary nuclear strategy today and so let me just offer sort of a brief a brief synopsis of the article and essentially uh, they say and let me quote instead many countries are relying on them being nuclear weapons on them to make up for the weakness of their conventional military forces and so their their fundamental premise is that adversaries are relying on nukes because they do they can't build conventional forces that can effectively compete with the United States's conventional forces and the PGMs that we regularly employ uh, against adversaries. And then they go in to explain this argument in detail, and they argue that optimists, or the, those who would argue that nuclear weapons are unlikely to be employed, uh, they say that you know it's a that for those like the Russians or the North Koreans, they say that this is a bluff, that they wouldn't actually employ those nuclear weapons. And the author's right, and I'm uh, quoting here: according to optimists, giving credence to the nuclear bluster of weak enemies is misguided and plays squarely into their hands. End quote. Now. They also say that the optimists are incorrect. And they, they go on to say that the conundrum that U.S. adversaries face today, how to con convincingly threaten escalation and bring a nuclear-armed opponent to a stalemate, was solved decades ago by the United States and its NATO allies. And they hearken back to the early years of the Cold War when the United States initially in the 1950s under President Eisenhower had the new look policy and they said, hey, we're, we're going to go nuclear early and we're going to escalate right away. And then after sort of new look ceased to be the policy because there were so many instances in which nuclear weapons would not be used. So new look, new look lost some credibility. Then the U.S. moved to a policy in which they said, if sovereignty is at risk, 
we are going to escalate with lower yield tactical nuclear weapons and sort of gradually escalate and not go to massive retaliation. And that, you know, that policy after the demise of New Look, we eventually worked our way into that policy. And so the argument that they're making is essentially that our adversaries have seen the policies the United States has had and that they are themselves building towards a similar strategy. And this this is something I've written on and colleagues have written on is this idea that for the Russians, for example, and the Ukraine has been the perfect case study in this, is that the Russians don't have the conventional forces that are required to defeat. They can't defeat uh, Ukraine, much less could they defeat NATO in a conventional conflict. So what do you do? You build nuclear capabilities so that if you've you know, your sovereignty is at risk. If you think command and control is at risk, if you think you're at risk, you know, in Ukraine, for example, of potentially losing that conflict, what do you do? You escalate to nuclear weapons use and you use low yield nuclear weapons. Uh, then if you take, for example, uh, North Korea is a great example. And the North Koreans spent about 10 uh, in the first 10 years of their development of their nuclear weapons program, they spent $4 billion. Now you say, Ooh, $4 billion. That's a lot. Well, no, that's almost nothing. The U S defense budget is around $850 billion a year. And in a 10 year period, the North Koreans spent 4 billion to build a, a nuclear arsenal that is now an effective deterrent against an American and South Korean invasion. So it's not only that when you don't have the conventional capabilities, do you build uh, an arsenal that serves as your essential backstop, but they're also relative to the requirement to build comprehensive conventional capabilities. They're cheap. Nuclear weapons are very cheap to provide you a competent deterrent. And so the, the fundamental argument here that you know press and Libra offer is that the Russians the the North Koreans and to a lesser degree the Chinese is that they're building these nuclear capabilities that span from the the low yield tactical up to the strategic that they're building out these capabilities because they intend to escalate to nuclear use relatively early or earlier than the US would would or would aspire to because they know they don't have the conventional capabilities. That's sort of the fundamental argument. Uh, now, Jim, as, as you, you know, went through the article and, and for somebody like you, who is, I mean, you were one of those guys during the cold war who was uh, loading nuclear artillery rounds into you know, the U.S. Army's finest uh, artillery. And then you were, you know, after you said enough of that, uh, I'm going to be, you know, you became an engineering officer and, you know, you're a nuclear engineer and you were, uh, you know, retired as an Army FA-52. So you know and understand the employment of low-yield nukes on the battlefield better than almost anybody. So as you th read and think about this idea that the Russians, the South Korea or the North Koreans and then potentially the Chinese may try to escalate in these ways 
and other are like, ah, oh, no, this is just never going to happen. Do you see it as, oh, this is bluster or bluff? Or do you say, oh, no, this is how what they're really going to do? What What's your take? Well, thanks, Adam. And uh, always excited to be on this uh, on the show. So first, my first answer, I, I got two pushbacks against what you said. You said the Army's finest artillery. Actually, you could just stop with the Army finest because that's you know, the <laughs> end. The Army is the finest, and that's the way it goes. And you leave everything else off, although the artillery definitely was a, a king of battle for quite some time. Um, I don't know if they still hold that uh, that argument. But anyway, uh, the, uh, uh, the other piece is, uh, l- let me say, imitation is is the, how, how do they say it, the greatest form of flattery, right? So, so if the article is true to its word and people are imitating the United States and our nuclear deterrent strategy, that imitation is great because what is the objective behind our nuclear force? It's not to do what I used to do, which was gain, t- gain and hold territory and, you know, hold positions in, in rank and file during wartime, the objective behind our nuclear forces are to deter use against us by promoting fear that we would use them against you. And I know it sounds counter to everybody's view or many people's view and the understanding of deterrence, but that's what our nuclear weapons are. So the premise that I find a a little bit difficult to to swallow in this article is that our adversaries are, quote, escalating their use or their nuclear arsenals in order to mimic us. Well, if they are interested in ensuring that we don't have great power wars as we want to and deterring any kind of great power conflict, as you would say, Adam, in your book, uh, then, by the way, I reread it over the Christmas break. And uh, uh, if, if that is what if that is what their intent is, then the intent is good because we all want no great power wars because of the horrible things that would happen to that. I think the intent, though, that I read in this article, the intent is that the escalation by our adversaries is to be uh, to be aggressively using nuclear weapons, first use of nuclear weapons, gaining territory and, you know, uh, taking over, plundering whatever uh, other uh, countries in order to have world domination. And that's a different view when you look at the value of a nuclear deterrent. So that's the only argument I would have against this concept of the return of nuclear escalation. It's the ambitions, you know, uh, of the adversary. Um, so what, what say you, Adam? Oh, I mean, if you take, you know, one of the examples they use is, is Pakistan and this in the, in, you know, the India Pakistan conflict. And so Pakistan, you know, India's essentially the economy. area, by the way. Yeah, economy's five or six times larger, five or six times more people. And India, or Pakistan rather, understands that they cannot beat the Indians in a conventional conflict. So therefore, they've built a, you know, a, a mix of tactical and strategic nuclear weapons that if the Indians were to invade, they would use the tactical nuclear weapons to stop the Indian advance. And then they would threaten Delhi and Mumbai and, and, you know, India's major cities with devastation with their strategic weapons. And for the, for, you know, the Pakistanis, you know, the, the point of it is to deter Indian aggression. That, that Mm -hmm. seems pretty clear. Now for the, the Russians, 
you know, their, their approach is quite a bit different in that they thought when they entered Ukraine that they were going to win that war quickly. We thought they could win it quickly. We thought they had a pretty capable conventional force. We've now found out that they really don't. And we, we found out that, you know, exercises that we thought were taking place really weren't taking place, that money was being funneled into, you know, individuals' pockets and that things weren't happening. And we've seen that corruption was widespread across the military and the political leadership. And therefore the Russians have, you know, struggled in, in Ukraine. And what, you know, the, the, the article makes a very good point is that let's suppose hypothetically that the Ukrainians, you know, let's say the Americans, the Europeans give them everything they need and they make a hard push on you know, re- returning all of the lost territories, Crimea and, and those those eastern provinces, you know, the, the oblast that the Russians have sort of taken, and, and they the Ukrainians get all that back. That in that kind of a situation, the Russians, Putin might resort to the use of low-yield or ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons to turn the tide of battle. But it's, it's not going to be a a first use uh, for, you know, just regular conflict. Now, let let me remind listeners that but at the Adam, end, but, but, go as ahead. you say that, though, that's not our old, but that's not our old deterrent strategy, as is the byline in this article. That was not our old deterrent strategy. Yeah, I mean, that, so, I mean, there are Sorry. variations, but, but escalation, you know, we did intend to escalate. We would escalate early, but we would escalate defensively. Yes. And so that that was that was part of this idea whereas you know if you go back to Russian Soviet Cold War strategy and and I'll remind folks that when this when the the KGB left its headquarters in Berlin they left all kinds of documents and then German uh, German scholars and others were able to go into that building and they, they pulled out all these documents that were left behind. And one of the things we found was that we, we, the West thought that the Soviet strategy was going to be this massive, you know, tank attack, this armored, uh, attack through the full, the gap, and that we were going to have to use nuclear weapons in response. But what we actually found out was that the, the Soviet strategy, the opening round of a Soviet attack was going to be nuclear strikes on the four largest cities in West Germany. And so we fundamentally got wrong how we thought the Russians would, would fight, you know, world war three. And so the the Russians are a bit different in that they have always been more willing to employ and use nuclear weapons than, let's say, the Chinese have or, you know, the North Koreans, Kim Jong-un. He knows that, that when he uses nuclear weapons, he's done for. And so his whole purpose is to make sure that he never gets in a position to have to use them. That that's kind of his. And that's why, you know, he's pursuing. He said he wants 500 nuclear weapons because he wants an arsenal large enough that the Americans can't take him out, that he can continue even through U.S. attacks and efforts to destroy the North Korean arsenal, that he can still launch and fight through that. 
such that he can't be destroyed, which therefore, again, deters the Americans. And so it's yeah. there's variations across countries. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you in that history, but I still go back and I, I, I reread another option I read. It's great to have a little bit of a break so you can re- go back and read things that you read once and forgot 90% of it. Um, you know, I'm looking at the at the book, The Spread of Nuclear Weapons, and Enduring Debate by uh, Sagan and Waltz. It's a great uh, book for our audience to take a look at in terms of uh, the debate. It gives you both sides. But I want to give you one of Waltz's arguments, which I, I really have – it sort of stuck in my mind after I read it. And it continues to come up when we talk about this escalation. And I'm not disagreeing with that history, Adam, but this is I, – I look at it as intent, and the difference in intent, like nuclear weapons don't have an intent. They are just a means. And in fact, if, if, if a means to affect the fear in your adversary or an, a means to get what you want. And if we ever come up with the Adam Lowther uh, photon torpedo uh, that could be fired from a slingshot intercontinentally, nuclear weapons will go away because there'll be something else that we can threaten people with, especially if it was you know, able to be you know, uh, we'll call it the AL 45 or something like that. And, uh, yeah. so, it, you know, when that happens, so it's just a tool. So the problem is it's the biggest tool out there right now. And so, so the argument is made, I want to just read from here. It says, if nuclear weapons make the offense more effective and the blackmailers threat more compelling then nuclear weapons are bad for the world, the more so the more widely diffused nuclear weapons become. If defense and deterrence are made easier and more reliable by the spread of nuclear weapons, he uses the word spread where I say participation, we may expect the opposite result. To maintain their security, states must rely on the means they can generate and the arrangements that they can make for themselves. So I I think it's about the intent of the use, and I'm not sure our adversaries' intents are very well known um, but by the moves that are being made by China and Russia and certainly North Korea, I'm not sure that deterring us from action in a defensive manner is really the, the end game. The, or, and maybe this is the argument to be made. It's offensively in taking, you know, like I said, seizing territory and controlling, you know, controlling land or, or areas. And that's, that's my question to you, Adam, where that fits in. Cause if it is, then this is this byline, which really just, I don't know. It just sort of gets, gets a crawl in me when it says is hijacked. It's old deterrent strategy. That was never our deterrent strategy. Otherwise in 1949, we would have ruled the world everywhere because we could have done that. And everyone would have bowed to that conquest and we didn't do yeah, it. Yeah. I'm not sure it's, I mean, no two strategies are going to ever be exactly the same, but the the fundamental idea I think is correct in that uh, if you're if you're conventionally weaker, then you have you place heavier reliance on a nuclear arsenal. That, that's the fundamental. Agree with that. I, I absolutely agree with that piece of it. Yeah, and and then if you look at the Pakistan, you know, Pakistan's sort of de- deterrent strategy, North Korea's. They're going to be slightly different than, say, Russia's and, you know, China. Take Taiwan, you know, the, the Taiwan conflict that may be on the horizon. For for the Chinese Communist Party and for Xi Jinping, if he is not able 
to bring Taiwan back in well I shouldn't never say back because it, the first of all the Chinese Communist Party never controlled Taiwan and then secondly Taiwan has always been largely independent it's never been a central part of of China of you know the Chinese empire so but as the narrative goes for the Chinese if they can't bring it back then that puts at risk at least it puts at risk Xi Jinping and it p- could potentially put at risk the Chinese Communist Party and its control over China. And so therefore they want to bring it back, but they don't want to use nuclear weapons because, I mean, if you if you lay waste to Taiwan, then what was the point of, of right. the conquest to begin with? So they're they're doing something a little different in that they have a very clear conventional strategy for how they think they can take out the U.S. Navy because they recognize this will largely be a naval fight and how they can stop the Air Force from the U.S. Air Force from fundamentally affecting the outcome of that. And they're they're building those conventional capabilities to do that. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And in fact, the nuclear threat in the China-Taiwan hemisphere the way I see it is not about nuclear weapons against Taiwan, but nuclear w- weapons against anyone that comes to protect Taiwan. And, uh, and that, that's where the threat comes into play. And, but the, the fallback from conventional to nuclear is a, is a fair argument. Although I would say if we ever do come up with the AL 45 slingshot employed photon torpedo, um, if we come up with that, that will be the fallback to those that don't have a full nuclear force. And we just move on to the next weapon. We just haven't done that technologically yet. We always go conventional to nuclear and nuclear seems to be the, the end result. It's why it's so special. Yeah. I, you know, and it has this, uh, highly, I would Our, submit ir- irrational, you know, element to it because people, understand they they understand so little about its employment that you know this is one of the great things about being for you as being an fa-52 is that you know you truly understand uh, weapons effects and how you can employ them to maximize or minimize those effects Mm -hmm. and you know for most folks they don't know no president i mean ronald reagan was the last president to participate in a you know a nuclear exercise you know Vladimir Putin participates in all of them. And so, you know, they, you know, these political leaders have an American, the American public, the Russian public, the Chinese public, they really don't fundamentally understand weapons effects such that they can say, ah, this is okay, but this one would be really bad. They can't make those, those distinctions. And I would submit most, you know, most of the professors who write about nuclear weapons, and deterrence. They write sort of in a highly theoretical as opposed to a, Hey, I really understand how, uh, ionizing radiation propagates. And I understand the environmental and geographic conditions that constrain it or, you know, allow it to propagate further. They, they don't understand that stuff. And so therefore there's this mental image that you know this is really bad and nuclear weapons go out for miles and miles and and so that has you know consistently worked to constrain their use but let me read from the article let me quote it here and he says quote 
when the Cold War ended, the Western allies suddenly freed from the fear of major military defeat in Europe, quickly soured on nuclear forces. Russia, acutely aware of its newfound conventional military inferiority, did the opposite, adapting NATO's old ideas about nuclear escalation to Russia's new circumstances. And this, I think he's, you know, Press and Lieber are are absolutely right Mm -hmm. in the sense that the Russians, you know, they took what they thought applied to them and said, hey, you know, you know, this idea, this, you know, this is how it made us respond. How can we then, you know, sort of flip the table? And we we want the because the the Russians, you know, by cultural background are, you know, they're they they're conspiratorial. They see everything Western as malicious. They 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 have this view that the West wants, you know, Russia for its oil and you know, maybe for population expansion. And, and so they, they have a very sort of negative view of, of the West. And so therefore they never really thought that, you know, the cold war was going to end. They, they saw it as Russian weakness and therefore was an opportunity for the West to take Russia. And Putin has written and spoken about this. And so therefore they've, they've got this arsenal because they couldn't, build the conventional capability. And this is, this is one thing that I I think the, I wish the article would have talked about more is that for advocates of arms control, their argument is we need to get rid of nuclear weapons and build more conventional capability. When what the, which the article points out that it's that very conventional weakness that makes adversaries go nuclear. So by us getting rid of our nukes and building more conventional, we're only going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And it's that secondary effect uh, that, that shows up. And that's why, that's why a good study of the adversary and their intent, their fears, et cetera, is really important here. Because what they fear is what they're going to respond with. And, uh, and because they have the, the only argument I would have against more, you know, more countries building nuclear weapons. And I, 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 uh, I absolutely agree, Adam, that ha- you know, building nuclear weapons, once you have the capability, um, is a very cheap endeavor. Um, I always get asked in my home, so I'm going to give you a little home uh, analogy here. People always ask me, isn't it expensive to have horses? Cause I have a barn and I have horses. And I say the horses are truly inexpensive. I throw some hay at them every day. They get a shot once every six months. I ride them every day and get a lot of pleasure. Having horses is inexpensive. What's expensive is having a barn and the hay equipment and a tractor and the land and everything else. And nuclear weapons are sort of the same thing. The entry point is an exp- expensive, a formidable technological challenge to get in. But once you're in, then it becomes a very cheap way of, of operating. So there's a little bit of a time delay of people getting in. And Russia's already in. China's already in. North Korea's already in. Uh, over a, North Korea actually took a long time to build their nuclear weapons program. If we had if we had, you know, the same time period for us building our first nuclear weapons, uh, we'd all be speaking German uh, because that's, you know, the, because we, 
our weapons program was very quick, and uh, that's just because of the ingenuity and innovation of the United States and our uh, scientific and, and uh, government, you know, pulling together to make it happen. So I, I don't disagree with that that argument, but uh, I still go back to saying what what is the fear that Russia has? And you pointed this out; they fear that conventional weapons use against them because they see that, and, and this is my opinion, you can argue incorrectly, they see that as our aggressive push. We're not aggressively pushing nuclear weapons against them, but I think at least the way Russia reacts, they see our conventional capability as being the aggression. And so it bleeds into the argument against the disarmament, exactly as you said. Yeah, and, and so let me offer a couple of quotes from the article. They say, if the fighting in Ukraine shifts significantly in favor of Kiev and Russian President Vladimir Putin decides that defeat in Ukraine threatens his regime, Russia appears capable and likely willing to initiate a coercive nuclear war. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that. And then there's they quote Dmitry Medvedev, the former president uh, and prime minister. And, and in July 2023, um, Medvedev said that Russia would, and this is quoting Medvedev, would have to use nuclear weapons, end quote, if Ukraine's counteroffensive succeeded in retaking Russian-held territory. And then continuing Medvedev, there simply wouldn't be any other solution. And so the Russians are making it clear, and this could be bluster. It could be bluster, or it could be real. But their argument is, I, 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 go I, ahead. Adam, I just want to catch that one thing you said about being bluster. If if it is not bluster, the unfortunate thing is it leads to nothing other than a Ukrainian defeat. If it's not bluster, at least without nuclear weapons. Yeah, I'm not. I think it would be nuclear. It depends. You know, I mean, if if you go and you use large scale, you know, large yield nuclear weapons to devastate, you you know, Kiev and other, you know, Ukrainian cities and you are killing millions of Ukrainians and maybe Ukraine capitulates. But if you're using ultra low yield or low yield weapons against battlefield Ukrainian positions, I'm not so sure because if you look at the way the Ukrainians have sort of and their you know their entrenched positions, uh, it's going to be harder to successfully use battlefield nuclear weapons because of the disposition of Ukrainian forces. So that's yeah. the one where I'm not sure how effective that would be because I mean the 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 trench networks are, are you know and as you know from looking at. Uh, uh, weapons effects, you know, you know, you have options of trying to figure out how those effects, you know, affect somebody who's protected versus unprotected. So, uh, and that makes a big difference. So I don't know. I don't know. But fundamentally, and, I, and I'll give you the last word because we're out of time. But fundamentally, I think that the premise of the article is largely correct. Jim? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that piece. I disagree with the byline. Um, and and so my, my last comment on that is I don't I see nuclear weapon use, tactical, strategic, whatever, if it is used, uh, is largely dependent on what you say, that irrational fear of that genie out of the bottle concept where, oh, no, a nuclear bomb went off. As I used to say, 
you could have a conventional bomb go off in New York City and kill tens of thousands of people. And you could have a nuclear bomb go off in the middle of a valley in the middle of Wyoming. Sorry, people in Wyoming. But that kills, you know, 16 groundhogs or something like that. And the headline would be nuclear bomb, you know, off in Wyoming. It's that irrational fear that you can't control that changes the international relations and control of what would happen if such were to happen. And that's the big unknown that, that I worry about in any kind of a nuclear conflict. And so... All the effects, you know, thrown off the table here because whether it's an effective military use, whether it's an effective capability, it's that other piece that is really difficult to figure out. So yeah. that's my end, end result. So it's hard to make those definitive answers. Back to you, Adam. Well, uh, it's, as always, an interesting discussion. And hopefully you, the listeners, have found it interesting as well. And, you know, you can be yelling at us. You don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. That's okay. Uh, we don't Come mind. On. Come so, on. So, uh, Come on our show. Yeah. So hopefully you enjoyed the discussion today. And, of course, we want you to join us on the next episode. But for now, we'll, we'll close the show. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The Nids View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.